The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com. This is A Closer Look with Arthur Levitt. Arthur Levitt is a former chairman of the U.S. Securities and Exchange Commission, a Bloomberg LP board member, a senior advisor to the Promontory Financial Group, and a policy advisor to Goldman Sachs. Eugene Ludwig was the controller of the currency under President Clinton, where he also served as a member of the Basel Committee on International Bank Supervision. In 2001, he founded the Promontory Financial Group, a risk management and regulatory compliance and consulting firm, focusing primarily on the financial services industry. Recently, IBM acquired his firm to train its artificial intelligence computer, Watson, how to assist banks and corporations with regulatory compliance. He joins me now for a closer look. I should mention that I'm an advisor to Promontory. Gene, you've been writing about the disconnect you see between GDP, low unemployment, and a roaring stock market that supports the notion that times are good. But, you say, a different picture emerges looking at the homeless people gathered by the Federal Reserve Building in D.C. or on visiting my hometown, York, Pennsylvania, where wages have stagnated and factories have closed. In reality, most Americans are poorer than they were before. So if measures like GDP and unemployment are true, how can so many middle and low-income groups be struggling? Well, Arthur, uh, it's a good question. Uh, The fact of the matter is, uh, uh, in large part as a result of technology change and globalization, uh, many of the traditional jobs that supported good wages have gone away. And uh, the numbers that suggest GDP is growing rapidly are homogenized numbers. And uh, so, for example, if Silicon Valley is growing tremendously, but another city in the United States is not growing at all or going down, you bring those together uh, and it looks the picture looks fairly good. Uh, it's kind of as if uh, you went to uh, your local bar and the average income was $50,000, and then Bill Gates walked in, and he took the average again, and he said, my God, it, the average now is $8 million. Some people would say, well, that's fantastic. The average is up. Everybody must be really getting rich. But in fact, uh, the average for uh, everybody but Bill Gates is still depressingly low. You say we need the Fed and other government bodies to use new measures that bring the economic reality facing our country into focus. Now, if we need to revise our macroeconomic measurements, where do we start? Arthur, I think they ought to be, the measurements ought to be disaggregated. 
so that you can give the headline aggregation number, which I think by and large in reality for most people is meaningless, but you ought to disaggregate it so that it's first by geography and then by income group so that you can get a more granular sense of who's being helped and who's being hurt by the uh, economic environment in which we're living. The St. Louis Fed reports that since 2000, education costs are up 132%, housing up 59 and health care up 53%. Yet over the same period, real median wages for full-time employed earners are up only 4.8%. Is costs versus wages an area that should be included in measures of economic health? Absolutely, Arthur. You've got it exactly right. Um, because if if I'm if I earn a dollar and uh, you know whatever I really need to buy now costs me three dollars, I'm not getting ahead. Uh, and uh, and that ought to be uh, measured and it ought to be discussed. And it's a a huge national issue. It was reported recently that forty percent of Americans don't have an extra $400 for emergencies. Is this the kind of data that shows how the economy is really doing? And should household savings and debt become a more important measurement of economic health? Uh, again, you're, you're dead on right, Arthur. Uh, the uh, consumer debt overhang in America, which, by the way, is getting worse, is one of the things that worries me because it, it masks actually the difficulties that are inherent in the economy. And by the way, we've been talking about median income. When one talks about low and moderate income, the numbers are worse. And when one looks at uh, sections of the country that have been perennially depressed, it's even worse, including areas like Appalachia, um, uh, certain parts of rural America, and, and many big cities. Uh, so absolutely, uh, you're, you're, you're dead on right in terms of what we ought to be looking at. Gene, you write that fragmentation shouldn't be mistaken for diversity and about a declining sense of shared vision. And I'm reminded of the famous GDP speech that Bobby Kennedy gave 50 years ago, in which he said, too much and for too long, we seem to have surrendered personal excellence and community values in the mere accumulation of material things. The GDP measures everything, in short, except that which makes life worthwhile. What should GDP measure, and how do we get back to that sense of shared citizenship? Well, Arthur, you're asking a profound question, because uh, in addition to the economic measurements, which we traditionally use to look at the nation, I think uh, I agree with Bobby Kennedy that one ought to be looking at other indicia of well-being. Uh, for example, safe streets, educational opportunity, upward mobility. There, there are a whole variety of measures that measure, I think, human well-being. You know, uh, health outcomes, which, by the way, have been going down in America in some areas profoundly, uh, are are real measures of human well-being, and and they ought to be as much of a headline report as the GDP numbers. The New York Fed reports that younger people are so cash-constrained and crippled by debt that they're forming households later, delaying investments in homes and 
neglecting other productive investments in their futures. Is there anything that can be done about this? Well, the plight of the middle class is something I've worried a great deal about. The plight of younger America is just as worrisome. Um, this overhang of, um, of educational debt, which young people are carrying, is really pernicious. Um, it does two things. One, uh, it, it doesn't give these people uh, a fair shake. It doesn't support the development of the economy. And in addition, it directs folks often from doing uh, tasks that we all would like to see done. For example, a doctor in an emergency room at a hospital that may not earn a great deal of money, but produces an enormous amount of social good. Instead, that doctor, if he has a huge or she had, uh, overhang of, of uh, debt from college or, or, or graduate school, is incented to do other things to earn more money to repay the debt as opposed to do things that are socially needed and, and useful and maybe personally satisfying. You've also pointed out that young people have been encouraged to get a college degree instead of pursuing the skilled professions that involve more manual labor and that we need to explore new ways to find a place for skilled crafts in America. You mentioned Germany as an example. What do they do right that we can learn from? Well, the, the, the German uh, economy does two things, I think, that, is, uh, that are admirable. First, there is a genuine respect for people who uh, may not have gone to college, but are, are superb uh, 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 parts of the nation in terms of fulfilling other skill, needed skill areas that uh, are, are uh, like any work, noble in terms of the way somebody does it. Uh, the second thing that uh, the German society does is produce an educational roadmap for folks who don't go to college. So if they follow the roadmap, they can increase those skills to a level of high excellence, competing on a global basis uh, in ways that, unfortunately, the United States just doesn't do. You know, an, a new analysis of all Fortune 500 companies brought out the finding that only 4.3% of workers will receive a one-time bonus or wage increase tied to the business tax cuts. Now, we have robust growth occurring at full or near full employment, yet we have falling wages. Why? Well, it's, it really, Arthur, is, I think, a result principally of the skills gap. We actually, even today, in a, um, in a robust economy, have millions of jobs uh, going uh, without takers. And uh, they're high-wage jobs, high-skilled jobs, and, and unfortunately, too many people don't have the skills to fill those jobs. Um, uh, instead, uh, they were educated at a time uh, uh, where skills training wasn't really part of that educational background, where technology wasn't part of that educational background, where STEM uh, subjects were not as emphasized, and they're not ready to take those jobs. That disconnect is uh, is is really profound. It's something America has to overcome for the well-being of its people, and um, and we're being hurt by it. 
The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com. As part of that, should we be looking at the federal minimum wage, which is now $7.25 and hasn't been raised in nine years? As an economic matter, Arthur, there's a, a great deal of, um, you know, toing and froing, different points of view about minimum wage and whether if you raise the minimum wage, people get put out of work and more jobs go abroad. My personal view is minimum wage is too low, um, dramatically too low, and that, uh, uh, you know, uh, we have a really civic matter uh, responsibility uh, to wage uh, to raise these levels. But even at minimum wage levels, uh, it's hard in America today uh, to survive. Um, I, I, as you pointed out earlier in the uh, broadcast, uh, health care is up dramatically. Food is up dramatically in terms of cost, I'm, I'm saying. And, uh, and education is up uh, even more dramatically. Uh, at a very minimum, you might say, we've got to raise the minimum wage, but there's a lot more we need to do. Gene, what are some examples of financial technology businesses that would apply for the charter that you spoke about? Well, Arthur, the, the new national charter uh, for uh, uh, fintechs uh, is a great thing because um, one of the dangers we have in our society is, you know, quite a number, and I think it may even be the majority of the financial system that is completely unregulated. Um, uh, for those folks who get a national charter, they will be regulated, and that is a good thing from a safety and soundness perspective. You can imagine, uh, you know, quite a variety of different companies, some that uh, through uh, apps on your telephone lend money, some that manage wealth, again, in the same kind of high technological way, some that are engaged in the payment system, making payments when you go to get a cup of coffee, and some that actually provide technology services to more traditional institutions. All those institutions, um, uh, through the actions of the controller, uh, have an opportunity now to apply for a, uh, a national charter. So how do you feel then about uh, New York State regulators saying that a fintech charter is a regulatory train wreck in the making? Arthur, I believe that the states in many cases offer a charter for technology companies now. Um, many of the uh, companies, we have, a, we have a federal system, and many of them are, in fact, licensed by the state. The, the nature of the America's dual financial system is to have a federal chartering opportunity and a state one. Uh, giving this federal charter... Uh, I think, as I mentioned, a very good thing because it allows companies to have the uh, opportunity to get the charter and, and it allows America to actually regulate them. So you think that New York is off base in their attitude? 
Uh, well, I, I think I have a lot of respect for um, the states and the state regulation, and, and uh, New York, uh, as, uh, as much as any or more, it's a great uh, state regulatory system. But uh, I'm a big believer in the dual banking system and the dual financial system, where you both have great state regulators and great federal regulators, and, uh, and uh, companies have a right to choose which regulatory regime they want to be regulated by. So if Amazon, for instance, got permitted to have a bank charter and begin offering banking services, will that threaten community, smaller community banks? Well, uh, having uh, commercial firms, industrial firms or retail firms uh, have a uh, banking or other financial charter uh, sets off a whole bunch of different issues, it seems to me. Uh, there, America has traditionally um, disliked the notion uh, that uh, commercial firms would be uh, in the banking business. And the reason is that there was a worry there would be a tying, a sort of bias that you'd, you know, uh, you'd force financial services on people who were buying another product at your store and not give them a fair deal. Uh, that's been a historic view in America. And uh, before we cross the line and go ahead and make any changes in that area, it ought to be studied with great care because there is a danger that um, that um, that there's a conflict of interest, an inherent conflict of interest there that will disadvantage the consumer. A uh, Republican representative named Patrick McHenry said that the Republicans should stop obsessing about cutting Dodd-Frank rules, and instead focus on legislation that will help prevent the next economic crisis and on the technology that's changing banking. Do you agree with that? Yes, Arthur. As a matter of fact, I do agree with that. Um, uh, Dodd-Frank isn't perfect, but it was a step forward. Um, it's uh, being refined and will be refined over time. Um, uh, on the other hand, uh, uh, one of the uh, areas that really needs to be addressed is the degree to which we have taken away from our senior government officials um, the ability to uh, be flexible in a crisis. I think one of the mistakes that's been made over the last 10 years is actually um, rules that have tied the hands of the Secretary of the Treasury, the Chairman of the Fed, in a crisis. And in fact, it was the flexibility that they had in the last crisis that kept the country from really uh, going into a tailspin. Gene, Mick Mulvaney, the budget director, and NEC director Larry Kudlow and the biggest GOP donors, the Koch brothers, are all against the president's trade war and the pain for farmers and manufacturing is spreading. Are you concerned about the effects of a trade war on growth? Well, I, I'm a big believer in, and I know it's a well-used phrase, fair trade, and, 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 and I tie that to both free trade. I think globalized trade and, and the opportunity uh, to cross boundaries uh, is a really good thing, and it, it has an opportunity to lift the well-being, and historically the numbers show it, the well-being of all global citizens. Having said that, um, uh, we've got to be careful that we do it on a fair and equitable basis. 
and and that does deserve a great deal of focus, and that's real. But uh, cutting back on free trade in a vigorous fashion with a meat axe is enormously dangerous, and um, it, it can mean a you know a serious declines in everybody's well-being. Uh, it's what we did in the 1920s, uh, uh, and it uh, uh, it really uh, in that case brought on the Great Depression. Uh, so uh, we've got to be very very careful about uh, restricting uh, trade in a um, in a uh, uh, you know thoughtless way. Are we heading in that direction in your judgment? Well, there's certainly storm clouds on the horizon, and um, uh, and I'm quite worried. Uh, uh, you know, the major tariff changes affect individual populations very significantly, as we've seen in the Midwest. Uh, our farm goods situation has been affected negatively uh, by tariff changes, and that's there are real people trying to earn a real living. Um, and uh, people who lose their ability to earn a fair wage get pretty angry. I would, too. Uh, so these uh, changes can be enormously disruptive on a personal basis. And uh, this is an area dealing with international trade, in my view. We, we want to push for as much free trade as we can. And it's an area where the changes need to be made. They need to be made with a scalpel, not a meat axe. What signal would you look for, Gene, in terms of step that the government should not be taking uh, that might uh, suggest that we're going headlong into the wrong direction? Well, you read it every day in the papers. Uh, uh, you know, hear it on the news. Uh, uh, you know, uh, you know, uh, huge uh, both threats and actions that increase uh, tariffs uh, markedly. Um, and um, and that's you know highly worrisome. It's human nature, country to country, when somebody takes a big high headline point of view, that people in the other nation get angry. It affects them economically, and then they take a retaliatory view. And that kind of vicious cycle is something that um, is highly dangerous. Um, we we want to create virtuous cycles that open things up, that create more opportunity. We we don't want to be in a position to be in a combative, uh, uh, vicious cycle, and I, I fear we may be heading in that direction. Again, to the economy, every elected official that I speak to says that we need infrastructure investments for jobs with better wages, yet nothing ever gets done. They talk about uh, projects which have zero funding. What's going on? Uh, is this just the way politics works? Are we ever going to see any movement at all with respect to infrastructure? Well, uh, we've got to have courage. And, and we've, uh, uh, you know, unfortunately not... Uh, been as aggressive as we ought to be in terms of infrastructure spend and other needed expenditures with a vision towards a future like education. You know, it's interesting, uh, after World War II, we had the highest GDP debt per capita in the history of the United States, I believe, but certainly in 100 years. And what Eisenhower did during that time was to decide that what this country needed was highways, good highways going 
coast to coast into many of our cities. And he created the Highway Trust Fund. And he began to build a great, the greatest at that time highway system in the world. It was a vote for the future, a vote for the people's future. It was a bold move at a time when we had, uh, you know, too much debt. Uh, uh, we need that kind of uh, visionary view towards our infrastructure today. Um, and, uh, you know, it's essential. We have crumbling infrastructure. Uh, you know, uh, uh, we, we just need that kind of focus for the future and for our young people. Uh, people have confused in America the difference between wasting money and spending it and investment. Nobody can have a company that advances. Nobody can have a society that advances that doesn't invest in the future. And what we need to be doing in this country is invest in the future. And if we don't do that, uh, Katie, bar the door. What a thoughtful and articulate observation. He's a thought leader and expert on banking regulation, risk management, and fiscal policy. Former controller of the currency, he founded the Global Financial services advisory firm Promontory Financial Group, now an IBM company. Gene Ludwig, thanks for joining us. And by the way, if any in the audience have comments about the program, email me at a closer look at Bloomberg.net and follow me on Twitter at Arthur Levitt. If you missed the first part of this interview, the podcast is available at Bloomberg.com. This is A Closer Look with Arthur Levitt. From Silicon Valley to Wall Street, the promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage. But what will the next phase of AI adoption look like? Which companies from big tech to startups will dominate? And where do the risks and unintended consequences lie? I'm Emily Chang. Join me at Bloomberg Tech in San Francisco, May 9th, to answer many of the industry's burning questions. Alongside SNAP's Evan Spiegel, Xbox President Sarah Bond, OpenAI's Brad Lightcap, top researcher Dr. Fei-Fei Li of Stanford, and many more. More details and just a few tickets left at Bloomberg.com slash TechSF.